0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, holy Mackinac Hamilton has the Grey cup for 2021. Hamilton Councilor Jason Farr joins us to talk LRT and Hamilton's development in the aerospace and defense industries. The final Mueller report could be coming as early as next week. And also, the clerk of the Privy Council says that he was worried that somebody would be assassinated during the upcoming federal election due to the current toxic tone of political conversation. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the good news. Uh, Yesterday it was announced by the Canadian Football League that the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the City of Hamilton will be hosting the Grey Cup in 2021. Uh, Of course, the Tim Horton Field. Uh, The bid was put in some time ago. We've talked extensively about that. And uh, and now it has come to fruition. And it's been a long time coming, I'll tell you. Scott Mitchell is the uh, CEO for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing
1: great Bill. How are you?
0: hey, great. Listen, first of all, congratulations. this is this has been a lot of hard work by an awful lot of people, hasn't it?
1: It sure has. And and you know, we talked about it uh talked about it last night and, and this morning, you know, just so happy for everybody at the city of Hamilton and, and all of our terrific fans and obviously our caretaker Bob Young and uh and then our staff. I mean it's just a great uh, a great thing and uh you know it really is just a privilege to be able to host one of the world's iconic sporting events and uh we're thrilled to be bringing it to the city of Hamilton.
0: Well, it's as, as we've talked about on the program. I mean, this is uh, this is this is something that everybody wanted a piece of. I know there were three cities apparently were in, in the running for for the next couple of Grey Cups: uh, Montreal, Regina, and, and Hamilton, of course. But but everybody seems to want a piece of this. Uh, this this is a, an event because it's not just the game, is it, Scott? I mean, this is a week long event that that really, as I've seen it when I've attended a number of these, and of course you've been to all of them as well. This this really just kind of engulfs the entire community where the games are being played.
1: Absolutely, and I think first of all, uh, you know, there were three cities involved with bidding for 2020, and uh, the bidding for 2021 wasn't open. It just uh, so happened we've got a great commissioner who's very creative. Who. uh, at the end of the day, just felt like both Saskatchewan and Hamilton uh, were deserving of uh, of winning bids. And and that's what happened uh, in terms of awarding, too. But had 2021 been open for bidding, I can promise you there would have been probably a half a dozen cities bidding for uh, 2021. So we're very thrilled and appreciative of Randy Ambrosi and the board for uh, seeing that Hamilton was, was deserving and not having to go through another process for 2021. But You know, as for the game, it's really, it's not the game, Bill, and it's not even the festival of the week. It's the the build-up to it. I mean, right now, as of today, you know, for the next three years, people will be talking about the Great Cup in Hamilton in 2021. And there's going to be terrific national profile for the city for the next three years as we work towards Great Cup. And then as we work through the year, you know, obviously the focus of the sporting world, and particularly in Canada, will be on great cup in hamilton in 2021 and then the whole week is just a phenomenal festival of activities and, and opportunity for the city to showcase itself to not just the country but uh, around north america with the game on uh, on espn and and the profile that it has so it is a major major event i think uh you know it hasn't been in hamilton in some 25 years but i think people uh you know should understand that this is canada's largest single event annually and uh Certainly one of the biggest sporting events in the world. And, and as I said, we're thrilled to to be bringing it to Hamilton.
0: You know, Scott, for some of the longtime listeners, uh, as you say, 1996 was the last time the game was played here. Uh, that That's, as you mentioned, going back. I think you were still knocking people around on the football field yourself back in those days. But but, but we were here back in those days. This is a whole different animal, though. I mean, the Grey Cup itself and the league and, and everything about the Grey Cup week and the event is is. Uh, it's a spectacular event. I mean, I, I, back in those days, I mean, the league was on tentative ground. The football club here in Hamilton was on tentative ground. Uh, and, and, you know, so it was not that big a deal. But this is uh, this is something that has really evolved over the last few years, hasn't it?
1: It sure has. And as I said, you got people from all over the world coming. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, we expect a huge contingent of fans across the country coming. And I think one of the things we're so excited about is uh, – is just showcasing the city of Hamilton and what the city of Hamilton has become. It's always been a great city, uh, but I don't think any time uh, in the last few decades has been greater than it is right now. And I think uh, all, all all the great things that are going on even between now and 2021 and what the precinct is uh, of around uh, Tim Hortons Field is looking like. I mean, it's just a great opportunity for us to show how proud we are of this great city that we all uh, either live or work in or both, And uh, and that's really the exciting part about this.
0: Uh, and and the week long thing. I mean, as I say, I've had the privilege of attending the last number of Grey Cups, and uh, uh, to, to, it's just the atmosphere. Then, and I've talked about this on the program over the last couple of days. It's, it's remarkable to see. I mean, you know, the, there are some institutions that you think, okay, that's going on, but I mean, if you're two blocks away from the stadium, you don't understand that there's any event going on. But but this is something that uh, I guess people really have to experience, and, and they'll see this up front, obviously, in 2021. But it's not just at the stadium, it's the downtown, it's, uh, it's the awards banquets, uh, all nine teams are represented in the league, and uh, you know they, they all kind of set their, their, their standard down at one of the, usually one of the watering holes down around the, the downtown area, and that's kind of like home base for those fans. I, I'm amazed every year that I've gone to this, Scott, the number of people that actually travel, it doesn't matter who's playing in the game, they just want to be there because it's the Grey Cup.
1: Absolutely, Bill. And I think one of the great things, I mean, I've been going to Great Cups since I was a kid, but I think one of the u- unique things is just the atmosphere around it. I, I think, uh, you know, I've probably been to 30-some Great Cups and I've rarely seen any uh, anything remotely uh, um, controversial just in terms of, of uh, fan behavior. It's kind of a love-in and celebration of uh, of Canada and of football. And I think it's, uh, it's really just a fun atmosphere. I think people get together with their friends across the country and, and – uh, friends they have in that host city and you have a lot of people who you know you maybe used to live in Hamilton who will come back for the celebration so you know it's really really exciting and I think uh, people will understand that as as we get closer to it and I suspect uh, by the time it's all said and done and finished I think people in Hamilton will think it's one of the great experiences they've had.
0: Well, one of the things about this, thing, I think, that really helped the bid, and and I go back to the days uh, when when uh, the CFL was here, and Randy Ambrosie, of course, appeared before Hamilton City Council and started talking about the festival itself. Uh, th- there's a there's a a serendipitous element to this, isn't there, Scott? I mean, this city has grown and evolved over the last number of years. uh You know, it's not just the number of hotel rooms, but that is important. But you talk about restaurant districts and the kind of the Renaissance that's going on here right now. uh it, It's a city that's ready to host a game like this, and I think Randy Ambrosi was ag- acknowledging that when he was here in town. And certainly, I think that was part of the reason for Hamilton getting the the games for the twenty twenty one.
1: Well, it starts with Tim Hortons Field, Bill. Yeah, I mean that's the linchpin to this whole thing. Uh, uh, that's what enabled us to be able to host a great cup at the end of the day. And, and I think Tim Hortonsfield is symbolic of the growth and development of Hamilton. And you're exactly right. The hotels, the, the bars, the restaurants. I think we're very fortunate. We have a commissioner that just so happened to move to Aldershot in the last year. So he's a stone <laughs> throw
2: away from uh,
1: Tim Hortonsfield and Randy talks about it all the time. How, uh, you know, he, he used to be a guy that moved came into Toronto for all of us sports entertainment. And now he's a guy that drives into Hamilton every weekend with his wife and his family does to, too get their meals and entertainment. So, you know, it's just it's a great time for the city and I think it's the perfect time for us to be, you know, working for the next few years to showcase Hamilton and then of course put on the great event in twenty twenty one.
0: What's this mean to the football team itself uh, I mean the city we'll, we'll get into obviously, and there's a, there's a obviously a, a huge i think and a very plain net benefit that's going to happen here because of the money that's going to come into this, but it's been a long time coming for the football team and and, and uh just talk to us a little bit, Scott, about how this this uh, i i guess i think reflects the kind of work that you and and Bob and, and so many other people in this organization have put into this football team and this business operation here
1: well, I think first of all it's hard to explain to people uh. But I'll try yeah, how much it means to the organization. I think when you're part of an organization, whether it be uh, on the football side, but particularly on the business side, and, and you spend you know your whole year working towards the season and, and you see all these other franchises uh, get to have the experience of putting on a Grey cap and really bragging about your organization, your city, and to be part of an organization that doesn't get to experience that, it, it, there's a hollow feeling that, uh, you know, you don't feel that you're part of that club that gets to put on the big international world-class event. So, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled for our staff. You know, they're they're a phenomenal staff. I think, uh, I think, you know, we've certainly established ourselves to have a great reputation in the world of sport. But uh, this was a really missing piece for our executive team and our staff to be able to experience putting this on. And I know they'll do a fantastic job. I mean, the guys, uh, Matt Afnick, is just a tremendous, tremendous leader and executive in the world of sports. We're very fortunate to have him in Hamilton, and all the staff. I don't want to go through them all. They all know who they are in the executive team. Um, they're they're world class, and and uh, thrilled for them to be able to to have the privilege of putting on a great cup. And uh, you know, it's just been a missing piece of the organization that's hugely important. And of course, you know, I'm going to talk about the staff because they're very important to me personally and and uh, and to Bob, but. You know, it's about the fans, and for our fans in Hamilton and the city of Hamilton to not have experienced a great cup in 25 years, you know, it's just not right. And I know our fans are, uh, were frustrated in not having that, particularly once we built Tim Horton's field, but, you know, now what we need to do is put on the greatest great cup that's ever been put on to ensure that we can be a regular host of great cups.
0: Well... And one of the element of this, and I, I'm not trying to blow smoke up here, but I think people understand that. I, a lot of people that have been fans for years or you know, in attending the games, whether it's Ivor Win, and of course now Tim Horton Field, they they understand the on field product, and they understand okay that that's the coach this year, and this is the team, etc. But the front office was was, was something that uh, I think, frankly, and I'll, I'll be candid here, was kind of lacking over a number of years. I mean, you and Bob took over this franchise a number of years ago. You, you basically looked at this, and, and I saw this developing. You basically, what do we need to do to make this a better organization? And you went out and got it. Uh, you know, whatever it cost, whoever you had to get, you got those people. And you mentioned a few of them. And you're right, I don't want to start mentioning any names because you're going to leave somebody out, and I don't want to do that. But, but you made that element of the, of the organization one of your main priorities. And I see that reflected now in the game day operation. Every time you go to Tim Horton Field right now, and the, and the Randy Ambrosies and the other general managers and organizations that come in here as visiting teams, I think they see it now too. And I think that's a real reflection on, on the priority that you've made. On field has got to be important, but you've got to have a business side of this as well. And, and that's a box you can check now.
1: Well, I think you're right. And, and honestly, there's no chance we would have been awarded a great cup if, uh, if uh, the Board of Governors and Randy didn't feel like we had an outstanding staff. Um, so that's that's absolutely right, Bill. But, you know, look, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, the guy that uh, the guy I brought in was Matt Afnick. And Matt deserves a lot of credit. He's put together this great group. And I think the one thing that speaks volumes is we've had a great group together for a number of years. We've got great continuity. I think people love working for the organization. And, you know, the core of the leadership group and the executive team has been together for, you know, shoot, six, seven, eight, in some cases, 10 years. And I think that speaks volumes to, to working with a guy like, uh, like Bob Young. And as I said, uh, it's all about Matt and his great, uh, great team that he's put together that uh, now have a chance to really showcase themselves and how great they are.
0: Well, there's one other element, I'm going to throw this one in, too, and I know you're well aware of this, but uh, it's, it's the community support. And you talked about the fans, and that that's a big part of it, obviously. You want people to fill the seats and enjoy the games, and they're certainly doing that in record numbers, of course, at Tim Hortons Field. But you've got the business community behind you, too. And, and I, we, when I was doing the, the PA, the stadium announcing there for many, many years, and I, I went through the when David Braley owned the team and David McDonald and, and some other folks, and then, of course, John Michalik and Roger Urketty, the great late, great Roger Yerchetti, uh, they'd put their heart and soul into this. But, you know, they would go cap in hand, knocking on doors to corporate people and say, look, could you please help support this football team? And it was, it was tough going for an awful lot of those people for the longest time. Uh, now you've got groups like the Tigertown Council and, and, and Mosque's Meetings, which are basically the community people, the business community and the leaders in this community that are basically saying, we love this football team. What can we do to help them? I mean, it's, it's incredible to see the way that that element of the community has come forward and say, look, we're going to make this thing work.
1: Well, first of all, it, it, Bill, you're right. and It's essential, and, that, and we need that for, for Great Cup, and, and we've got great partners, but we're going to need everybody in the city to be uh, pulling together to, to put on the greatest Great Cup, uh, as I said, and, and uh, to ever occur, which is saying a lot when you've had about 110 of them by the time we come around, or 111, I think it is. So, um, yeah, no, we've got terrific support in the community, and, and I think... Um, you know, it's a football city. I've talked about this before. I mean, it's just great to work in a football city. Appreciate People appreciate how iconic the Tiger Cats are and what they mean to the community. I think people understand all the incredible things our players do in the community and our staff. Uh, uh, so this is a chance to, to celebrate that. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that we don't get a chance to talk about enough is, is just how great, you know, our, our group is. And I think, uh, you know, I get a chance to travel all over the world as being, in charge of uh, this great group of companies for Bob. But I can tell you that uh, our partnership group uh, is known as as the best in the business, and I'm not talking about the CFL. These are people that are CEOs of major companies that take me aside every day and talk about how incredible the Ticats organization is in terms of executing partnerships. And, uh, you know, that's hugely important for us. And as I said, we're going to need everybody in the community of Hamilton to be on board for 2021.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the on-field product, too. And uh, I, I know that you guys are kind of hoping to, you know, the training camp could start tomorrow because I mean, there's a there's an excitement, there's a buzz that's going on with this football team. Obviously, the coaching staff with June Jones coming back as the offensive coordinator, or Alinda Steinhauer as the head coach, and, and a great staff that he's assembling right now. Uh, and uh, an awful lot of these key free agents uh, that everybody was worried about are back in the fold right now. This is This is a pretty exciting time for the football team.
1: Well, it sure is. I think uh, you know we've always been fortunate to have some great staffs, but uh, I think kind of generally, generally the feeling around here right now is we've got the best staff we've had probably since uh, that Great Cup run in '14 and '15, and it's a great group of people. You know, I think, Bill, you and know, I talked about this. At the end of the day, you know, we've done a lot of, of great things for the organization. Of course, there's been a few uh, few bumps in the road, like there is with any organization. But you know, there's two there's two things that uh, you know we haven't checked off the box yet. One is hosting a Great Cup. We're going to do that now. And the other one is uh, we got to stop knocking on the door of the Eastern Division finals of the Great Cups, and we got to win a couple of these things. So I think we got an excellent football team. We got a great group of people. And you just never know in the world of sport, any given season, there's uh, challenges along the way. But uh, I certainly think we got a great opportunity this year and going forward to compete for Great Cups.
0: Well, uh, as evidence-based today, of course, because I know you had a viewing party down at the football stadium, of course, for for the announcement last night at 6.30, and to see that many people showing up on a cold February night uh, in the middle of the week just to say, hey, because we love this football team, uh, that's got to be pretty heartening for the organization.
1: Well, it's a football city, I say it all the time, and somebody who, for me personally, that... uh uh, loves the sport of football. It, it's just awesome to work in a city that cares about uh, the game and, and loves its football team. And uh, our players see that, our coaches see that, and uh, and it's fantastic now that we have a reason to to really focus on some of the celebrate for our fans in our city.
0: Well, I know that uh, Bob and yourself said, look, if we get the stadium done, we're going to bring a great cup here. And everybody was saying, when, when, when. Uh, it's happening, 2021, and everybody's uh, pretty jacked about it right now. Scott, once again, congratulations to you and to everybody in the organization uh, and with your partners of the city and and in the community as well, this is going to be it's going to be a party. Thanks so much, Bill, and I always appreciate your support. Okay, take care, Scott Mitchell, President and CEO, of course, of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, celebrating uh, a big announcement yesterday: the 2021 Grey Cup is going to be back in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Kind of a good news, bad news report from the Economic Development Department to Hamilton City Council over the past week. Uh, Glenn Norton uh, delivered the uh, annual report and. Well, uh, the bad news was that he's saying that an awful lot of the people that uh, were hoping to be investors and may still be investors uh, in the uh, downtown, especially along the LRT, road, are kind of holding their cards close to their chest right now until they get some sort of a word that this project's going to move forward. That's a little disconcerting to know that. But there was some good news, too, uh, especially up to uh, with the airport and some of the development that's going on there. Joining us to talk about this is downtown councilor for Ward 2, Jason Farr, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Jay, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today.
3: Thank you, Bill. Really appreciate it.
0: Well, oh, first of all, congratulations to the city as well. We were just talking to Scott Mitchell a couple of minutes ago, but the great cup bid, that's great news for the city for 2021.
3: Oh, unbelievable, and, and great news for CHML and uh, great news for all the restaurants and the people that uh, serve them, the wholesale goods to sell and hotels and everything else. I mean, the economic impact, we all know and you know very well, and I heard a lot of your conversation with the president of the Ticats just a moment ago, Bill, and it's I can't think of anything bad that could come of hosting Grey Cup Week in 2021.
0: Well, I can say for anybody who's attended uh, any of the festivals over the last number of years, it's 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 quite an event. And it just uh, consumes the whole city, and it's going to be an awful lot of fun, and we can hardly wait for it to get here. Listen, I got I want to talk to you about some of the stuff that Glenn Norton from ACTIV talked to you about, but uh, kind of a breaking news story that we just got this morning, and I know you're aware of this too, uh, a new wrinkle in this uh, condo development that's uh, going on down on James Street right across from the YMCA, and it looks like somebody else wants to put some money on the table here
3: oh very much so A very uh considerably um i want to say renowned but certainly a developer with a lot of pedigree across the world 77 high-rise developments in progress uh, throughout uh, the world a lot of it in uh, asia vietnam he's transformed ho chi Minh city and his first foray into a canadian development on a parcel as you well know we've talked many times about that uh, has had its fair share of controversy since the bankruptcy and the original application approved by council back in 2015 very interesting, uh, folks. Uh, I've met with them several times, along with staff. Uh, we've done some PR work, and uh, very bullish on a postage stamp property that already had an approval for thirty stories, but has its issues as it relates, particularly to uh, I'm restoring some heritage there and and its size, frankly. So, you know, I, I you know, spoken to you in the past, always trying to be a glass half full guy, Bill. But uh, I did have internally some. Concerns that, uh, you know, with the new downtown secondary plan, he, you know, an individual such as this could have picked, uh, parcels that might be a much easier to develop, but, uh, has a personal stake in this one. And I'm really excited about it.
0: Now, there's a few wrinkles, I guess, that still have to be ironed out here before this thing actually comes to fruition. But the, the the fact is, this is an international developer that's already got a great track record already. Mm. And I, I'm intrigued that they'd actually say, yeah, that's the property we want. I mean, because, uh, as you say, the, there have been some concerns here, and, and not the city's fault. I mean, you guys have, uh, you know, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and it was, it was actually some financial problems for the people that owned the property before. But to have somebody else come up and say, hey, I'll pick up the ball here, too, has got to be pretty heartening for you.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, originally this proposal, and uh, and 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 essentially, here's a, a a proponent who's come forward and is piggybacking on a on a past resolution of council, one that set a record in terms of the time it took staff from the formal consultation. So that's the first time an outside agency or developer makes a pitch to the city and starts the bureaucracy of the formal process to an approval. It was something like six and a half months. So It's never. Before heard of particularly with a large-scale development that had the heritage attributes then there was the 0.4 parking ratio we had never in our our uh, uh, history of uh, development approvals in the downtown had such a small ratio usually at that point it was about 0.8 and that means you know 0.8 or almost one spot per unit we went to 0.4 because they were uh, going through the roof on transit uh, scores and walkability and, uh, council, you know, starting to think more progressively in those terms, particularly in the heart of our city, and, uh, approved a ratio that was so never even came close. We broke, smashed all records there. So, so it, you know, and it was celebrated. There was very little, uh, uh, protest as to the, the development itself. There was obviously to the heritage aspects, but the other, piece there and where we changed the uh, the playbook a little bit was we used to have a delegated authority and that was called an alteration and therefore staff had the ability at the time to approve the three-quarter demolition of that church and there was all sorts of engineering reports that deemed it you know Uh, necessary uh, as those reports anyway stated but uh, we've since changed the delegated authority and now those sorts of alterations some call it a demolition there's still a piece remaining obviously have to go through council bill so a lot of a lot of firsts in the original approval uh, and that approval has been inherited and yesterday was a huge milestone from a committee of adjustment point of view they had six variances all of them were supported by staff all of them approved It went through within a few minutes, and I was there to uh, support it. And there was nobody present that was uh, an appellant to moving forward on this development. I think the large swath of us want to uh, see this continue and get it done. Uh, We did have one letter from some uh, local firm that uh, had some concerns and suggested in that letter that they may appeal they have 21 days and they're obviously within their rights to do so I'm already reaching out to that group uh frantically trying to get a meeting and I think I have one for Tuesday morning to try to explain to them that an appeal only sets us back potentially six months to a year when we have a proponent that's ready to put shovels in the ground in a month
0: well it's a good news story and and we're hoping that it's going to work out too and uh, because like you say, there was a lot of skepticism when when the original owners uh, went belly up and then things were going on all right, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the other stuff that you're learning this week. Uh, and first of all, I wanted to get your read on uh, something I talked to the mayor about yesterday when he was in here for the town hall. And, of course, that was one of the stories that uh, the ECDAF department told you about uh, how there seems to be a pause on the development. The people, Nobody's backed out of, the, of, of buying properties or developing properties along the LRT route, but they're, they're uh, kind of holding now, waiting for some positive signs right now. Does that give you any concern?
3: Well, you know what, I think the reference for the most part, Bill, is uh, with respect to wards three and four. Uh, Personally, as you know, I try to uh, assist and facilitate on projects as much as possible. And I can tell you the ones that um, are are very close to beginning, uh, some that are already in progress and others that are hopeful to be beginning soon. And we just talked a good deal about one of them. Uh, all of these projects in De- Ward Two, downtown uh, were by companies and developers and consortia that were LRT supportive, as you and I have talked about in the past. I can tell you, and hopefully bring some sense of relief to uh, those who are supportive of the Line LRT, and worried about some of those comments from uh, glenn norton um they're they're all uh, full steam ahead There's there's no evidence as far as my communications have have, have uh, gone on and continue to go on that anything is is slowing down at least in the downtown on major developments now the, are the comments to believe to be believed is there something to it absolutely and it was actually at the Development Charges Subcommittee, of which I'm a member, until ten o'clock, we. When I think Tuesday night that that Glenn first made those comments, our Director of Economic Development, and when he did, I turned to our General Manager of Planning and Economic Development, and I think my facial expression said it all. And 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 the comment from New Councillor J.P. Danko also immediately following. Boom goes the dynamite. We knew the next day, or even that night, uh, of all the great things we were doing with the DC. Subcommittee that was going to be uh, the focus of uh, the media, and certainly it was because there is definitely something to be said. And and while I thought Glenn made a very good uh, point in that it, it doesn't mean that they're not interested in moving; they're just sort of on hold. So there's been a lot of properties along the line route, the outside of Ward Two and in Ward Two, that have been purchased by um you know, LRT supportive uh, consortia or, or developers uh, interested in uh, making and, and, you know, we already have the planning in place and the TOC, the transit oriented uh, designs and, and all of that approved. And we're allowing for greater growth and densities along those stops and all of that's already in place. And so they purchase properties with a goal in mind to have, uh, you know, some mixed use residential commercial stuff ready for when the LRT is ready. And, you know, just as the government's paused purchasing real estate uh, or uh, having Metrolinx purchase real estate, I think there are, I absolutely believe that Glenn is right in sharing with the public that there are developers that are a little cautious right now and they're just putting everything on hold. And we don't want to hear that. It's a fact of life. But I think in the coming weeks, not months, uh, we're hopefully going to have some guidance. And with that, what's what's key is, of course, the mayor meeting with the transport minister.
0: Well, yeah, let's face it. What everybody's waiting here for is, is a thumbs up from the province to say, "Don't worry, that but this thing is still coming going to happen." And we haven't heard that. I mean, we're getting bad signals out of Queens Park right now. I mean, and 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 that's that's like, people have money. I mean, they want to know. I mean, that that there's going to be some positive uh, signs coming from this, and uh, we're not getting that yet. So hopefully, as you're right, that's going to happen. However, well, one
3: development at King and Queen where you you and i talked about there was a fellow that said in the spectator if it weren't for the lrt i wouldn't be building this building yeah that that's we're ready to put the hoarding up on that one i've had a a talk with mr paul kemper who's involved uh, heavily with that project he's invested significantly it's called the platinum it's a 27-story condominium complex all all full steam ahead on that so i mean while we even know publicly some developers who have said stated quite emphatically that it's these are lrt inspired developments Fortunately, I can, you know, bring some calm and relief to some of your listeners today who are supportive of LRT and believe in the economic development spinoff from it that here in War 2 it's still called Steamus Head. I don't know of any that are on hold. let's put it that way.
0: Hopefully anyway, and, that, and we uh, get this thing rolling again. Uh however, uh, there is some good news uh, from the SecDev report and, and a lot of it seems to be focused up around the airport. Now, we know of course about the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the industrial land that uh, the city has has been trying to develop up there. Uh, I don't know if too many of our listeners actually know of a company called KF Aerospace, but they're my new best friends now because they're putting 30 million dollars into the airport for a new hangar.
3: And hundreds of new jobs well paying jobs, and then on top of that and and even Glenn admits that you know all of a sudden, our economic development department, who uh you know are are engaged on a wide variety of initiatives across this city, whether it's urban renewal, whether it's it's uh, the build out of our industrial parks all over our uh, suburban areas. You know, suddenly we have this interest in aerospace technology and, and you can imagine, I mean, what that can bring. And so when a company of that size makes that significant expansion announcement that they did this week and all of us were very excited and all of us are learning more about this company now. Uh, makes that announcement, our crack team led by Glenn Norton, Norm Schlehem and the gang are starting to say we need to reach out to all those other smaller aerospace uh, technology companies, subsidiaries or branch companies, just like steel back in the day where we had a whole lot of smaller companies that fed into the larger, the Stelphos and the DeFascos and the steel cars. This is exactly where I think they're focused now. And, you know, judging from their track record and, the you know, the celebratory nature overall at at Wednesday's General Issues Committee about how well we're doing on our action plans, we have all the faith in the world that we're going to be able to attract even more of this industry and uh, you know Hamilton's on the map this is just the kind of thing that enhances our reputation for sure.
0: Well and one of the nice things about this and we I don't want to conflate uh, the the employment lines up there with the airport because they are two separate entities but I mean uh, one helps the other though in in this circumstance doesn't it and I know that uh, you can't get into too many details but we're also told that uh, that there have been an awful lot of inquiries about people that want to develop in those employment lanes that the city is putting forth up there right by the airport. Uh, And that's got to be good news from an economic standpoint and and obviously from a a commercial tax standpoint.
3: Absolutely. AEGD uh, had the potential to be as controversial when council passed it some years ago, making those lands available for industrial commercial development that either directly or indirectly or even not even associate themselves with the airport itself but all around that airport i mean there were uh voices uh delegating many actually at the time saying don't do it i mean but we you know from an economic development perspective from a jobs creation perspective in this city and particularly at that time felt the need as a council near unanimously if not unanimously uh, approved moving forward what by by making those hundreds of acres, many, many hectares available, and now we're starting to see the fruits of that uh, approval from four or five years ago. Notwithstanding, it, it had the potential to be as controversial as, uh, you know, the Red Hill Valley and the the link debates back in the day from, from those environmentalists sensitive to food security and farmlands and those sorts of things. Really good arguments, but ultimately on council and with the council of the day then and the mayor we had to make a decision we decided to to grow that uh, those opportunities for jobs and, and industrial growth and and uh, obviously we're seeing the fruits of our labors i as you've you've rightly pointed out with the news and, and in your discussions and in the, in the days since the presentation there's more exciting announcements to come i think this is going to be a very good year uh for those kinds of announcements where we're doing what we were trying to you know we were setting the table years ago Uh, So we can make these kinds of announcements, uh, you know, years later. And here we are years later where we're starting to say, look at all the hundreds of jobs that are coming. Ah, uh, because we've zoned appropriately and created space uh, to to welcome these industries, and created incentives in many cases.
0: By the way, that's a challenge here, and I wanted you to comment on this if I could, Jay, because I, I'm not sure, sure if a lot of folks maybe understand this. Because we we do have some great businesses here in this community, some that have been here for many many years, but but from a, a commercial tax base uh, situation, uh, an awful lot of these businesses are repealing their their tax bills and and the taxation that they're going on, and and I can understand that. I mean, they they're businesses; that's what they do. Uh, But more often than not, they're winning them, which means that's less revenue that's coming into the city right now. So it's incumbent upon you to actually find some of these these new businesses that are going to try to take up the slack there and and fill that void.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're frustrated, and as you've, again, talked about in the past. I mean, when we were kids, Bill, we relied uh, heavily on uh, industrial taxes, and uh, obviously that's waned over the years, and we've become very, very reliant on residential, and it's an imbalance that's uh, not indicative of... uh, of uh the kind of economic um uh, situation you want to be in you know you you want to sort of spread it around you want to have uh, a lot of uh industrial taxes you want to have a lot of commercial taxes you want to have a lot of res- residential taxes but we're we're leaning towards 90 percent residential we need to in fact we have uh, as part of our economic goals and initiatives as uh, previous council and this council uh, we're trying to, uh, you know, change the scale of things. And certainly, absolutely, you make the point, which is part of the reason why, in fact, a big reason why, you know, we expand the Red Hill Industrial Park, we created the uh, airport employment growth district, which we just talked about. Uh, we we started talking, having conversations about land banking to make land available to get land ready. Uh, so when these companies come, They already know they're going to have the land, they're going to have the infrastructure, the city is committed, and we all know we have a uh, first-class economic development department to help guide them through the process and uh, make them feel welcome and accommodate them.
0: One other quickie, and this is right into your backyard, and I know that it was also touched on in the report that you guys got this week, uh, and that's about office space downtown. I mean, an awful lot of businesses left in the bad old days of the city, uh, and it's great to see these, these new companies that are coming in here, but you, I like to see head offices. You like to see some of that growth happening in the downtown core and office space, too. What's, what's the projection there?
3: Well, we, we endorsed an incentive over 20,000 square feet. You get the D.C. exemption. So that's uh, going to a 60-day uh, commenting period now. I don't see a lot of uh, feathers being ruffled of maintaining that incentive for large office uh, D.C. exemptions, so development charge exemptions, trying to make it attractive for those corporations. The other thing about that, though, Bill, we you know, it's a tough stat to look at. you got Stelco Tower, which, let's just say, I don't know for certain, but it's 40% uh, vacant. You know, that that really skews the stats quite a bit because we're not talking about or celebrating as much as we should. The Steve Silveys and the, and the uh even, uh, you know, when you look at... Uh, uh what what are our Gore buildings that we've talked about many times and what they've got planned so so there are other offices being created that have been recently created more are on the horizon i know steve kiakowski and dave you'll probably want to talk to them in the coming weeks we'll have some exciting announcements along king street and and these are desired spaces maybe they're not the corporate headquarters they're smaller offices they're shared workspace but they're still offices and that area is growing it's tremendously successful um, and, it, and it's in, and it's taking in higher rents than you might see on the 15th floor of the Stelco Tower. So maybe we need to converse more, we have in the past, about allowing some mixed use, some, something different to happen in the Stelco Towers if they're having problems getting three, four floors of one company like the heyday. I mean, we called it the Stelco Tower and uh, open up the zoning a little bit and try to get creative a little bit, perhaps. I mean, that's a planning conversation for later. Uh, and, and, and while we're at it, we need to continue to keep our eye on the prize and focus on incentives on the larger. We're not going to f- forget about going after and attracting 20,000 square feet or more. And when we say 20,000 square feet or more, to your question, we're trying to attract those head offices still.
0: Jason Fire, the Counselor for our Ward 2 in downtown. Jay, as always, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of politics, though, on both sides of the border, both in Ottawa and in Washington, and I want to get into both of those stories uh, in the next couple of minutes. Uh, The word out is that uh, the Mueller report, I guess we should say the much-anticipated Mueller report, about possible collusion with Russia and uh, meddling in the uh, last U.S. federal election, uh, may be out in the next couple of days. Uh, What are the implications? And uh, I guess the overriding question is, uh, how much of this are we actually going to see? How much of this report? Joining us to talk about this is Jacob Nehaisel, Assistant Professor of uh, Political Science at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: I I guess the first question a lot of people are asking, and and certainly I think a lot of us uh, uh, like to get the direct answer to, uh, if in fact this is true that the report is going to be forthcoming, uh, how much is the public actually going to see of this report?
2: That's a great question. Uh, the public could see everything or nothing, and uh, everything in between. Uh, it's really up to the discretion not only of the, the special prosecutor, but also the entities who he hands that off to, and potentially even uh, elements within Congress. And so, I wouldn't be shocked to, to see that you know leak details or some uh, details of that emerge, no matter what, even if the special prosecutor really does want to keep it under wraps. But it's it's quite possible that we could, you know, see see very little of it.
0: Just so people understand the 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 order here, the the Mueller report. I mean, actually, will not go to the to the Congress initially. It goes to the Attorney General. He's essentially doing this at the behest of the AG. Uh, and there's a new Attorney correct. General. Of course, William Barr was just uh, sworn in. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, we're told that he's an upstanding uh, individual and, and very fair-minded, et cetera. but there's also, some, also, as you've heard, some skepticism that, well, he's one of Donald Trump's appointees, and is is he there to try to block this thing? And uh, I, I wouldn't want to besmirch the guy's character right off the bat, but there, there's an element there that that basically says that the Attorney General is the one who basically will decide how much the public gets to see of this report.
2: Absolutely. Um, again, I think that there are likely will be other elements that are handed off um uh, but yes absolutely the the first stop there is going to be the, the AG and they could do all or nothing
0: <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting uh because uh, one of the ways this rumor got started the other day was uh, i guess uh, it was a report from CNN that suggested that look at they've seen uh, a lot of people staffers uh carrying out uh, big boxes of uh, i guess they thought was uh, was files and and some of the testimony out of the offices and they said well that kind of means it's ending Uh, yet one of the individuals that was commenting on this, I I think it was on uh, MSNBC the other day, uh, who was a a Watergate prosecutor back in the day said, no, 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 we did that too, but it was because we were afraid we were going to get shut down, and we wanted to make sure that we got our files out of there first, so we really don't know what's happening here, do we?
2: Right, we've kind of been here before, there have been, you know, several reports of the the Mueller report is coming, the Mueller report is coming, but uh, nothing really has materialized, and I think Some of that reflects the public's impatience surrounding this. This actually has not been that long of an investigation, um, historically speaking, when we look at other instances where a special prosecutor was used. So, you know, a remarkable number of um, indictments have been handed out of this uh, investigation, uh, given the, the length of time that it's been going on.
0: Well, Watergate went on for quite some time. Uh, The Ken Starr investigation into uh, what was supposed to be Whitewater with the Clintons went on for a number (laughs) of years too.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it kind of morphed into uh, let's talk about his sex life now. Uh, Instead, it was was initially that was about a real estate deal that, uh, and I guess they found nothing there and said, well, let's just keep looking. Uh, So we. I think
2: that's the the danger of the special prosecutor if you're the executive in office is that once these things get started, they have a tendency to just go wherever the evidence takes them, and that could. You know, really you know they have no mandate to stick to the initial investigation they just go where the evidence leads them
0: Jacob what what's the role of uh, of the congress in a situation like this they they're carrying on of course their own investigation they've started this now that the, the, the democrats control the the house anyway uh, there, there's some speculation now that no matter what happens with this report that at some point Mueller is going to be in front of that committee too to tell them what he knows
2: Right. Uh, So with the the Democrats controlling the levers of power in the the House, they certainly have an investigative capacity. Um, They can call folks before them to to testify. Um, They can have closed-door meetings with various committees that are relevant to the investigation. Uh, And so, yeah, I think if I were the president, I'd probably be more worried about what Congress is going to do and what some of these other lawsuits that are running in parallel are likely to uncover. Uh, those lawsuits include one that was filed in the, in the Southern District of New York surrounding his um, inaugural committee um, doing some things improperly. So there are lots of other bites of the apple here.
0: If I'm going to go down a, a legal road here, because I mean that's that's what we're doing here, speculating, of course, on legal issues, and and obviously this is, may end up going to the courts. We never know what's going to happen with this thing, but if if in fact part of this is redacted, I'm talking about the report that Mueller does put out when in fact it does happen, if if Attorney General Barr says no, 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 that's confidential, or that could be whatever the the, the reasoning is that he may say, you know, the public's not allowed to see that. If Mueller testifies in front of a the House committee. Is he at liberty to talk about those things, or redacted means redacted means you can't talk about it at all?
2: That is a great question. I am certainly not a lawyer, uh, so that's that is something that I I don't know. Um, I think that if if Congress, well, that's a that's a great question. I think Congress is trying to score political points right now, and if they could get Mueller to to say something, that would be you know all the all the better for their from their view. So um, I think
0: he's going to want to sort of be
2: in two directions, which, of course, is not an unusual position for a special prosecutor to be in.
0: Are you suggesting politics is going to play a role in this? Come on, really? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is, I'm a political scientist. That's my answer to
0: everything. <laughs> Your raison d'etre. Uh, and, and not that it hasn't happened already, right, when the Republicans control the House and they had their hearings. And, and it's it's amazing how this gets very, very political very quickly. Uh, but, the right. essence, <laughs> but the essence of this whole thing, too, Jacob, is, is there are legal issues here. And, and I know that you're right, the Democrats and the Republicans want to play games with this. But at the same time, you've got people that are looking this uh, from the, the, you know, the prism of, of the law. Uh, Mueller, I hope, is one of those. Uh, from all, all we hear, he is that, that, that focused on a situation like this. Uh, this. This is pretty serious. I mean, what's going to come down here? It's going to have serious implications, not just on this administration, but, but on the electoral system. Uh, it's, it's really going to be pretty wide-ranging, I would think.
2: Yes, I think that's right. And so really at root, we keep hearing this word collusion thrown around. Um, what's that standing in what that is standing in for is just a whole host of, of what are at, at root campaign finance violations. And so um in addition to all the things that Trump's associates have already been been uh hit up for, which would include, you know, failing to to register as a foreign agent and, and lobbying improperly and those kinds of things. So yeah, there are a lot of, you know, strictly legal questions at issue here. Uh, that if they don't wrap up the president himself, uh, again, I'm I'm somewhat in the camp that impeachment is really the only way that those questions can be resolved while he's in office. It's certainly going to wrap up a lot of the associates.
0: Well, uh, it all hinges on what we hear, I guess, in the next couple of days. Uh, Jacob, thank you, as always. I really appreciate your time and your perspective on this today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you Great talking with
0: you you again. Uh, Jacob Neheisel, of course, uh, from uh, University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, That's what's happening south of the border. On this side of the border, of course, we have a... uh, Parliamentary uh, judicial committee that is looking into uh, a, well a very contentious issue of course the the, the Lavalin situation and of course the the resignation of uh, a cabinet minister from the Trudeau cabinet and it goes on and on and on. Uh, yesterday was some rather interesting testimony uh, that uh, took place, including from the the clerk from the Privy Council, who is like the number one civil servant in the government. And uh, well, it it got a lot of pushback and a whole lot of people on social media. Uh, first of all, some of them vilifying uh, what happened because of uh, the statements that he made. Some saying it was getting political. Let's get Richard Brennan in on this. Of course, uh, Richard, of course, uh, covered Queen's Park and uh, Parliament Hill for many, many years and uh, joins us now to give his perspective on this. Uh, be- let me let me ask you right up front uh, about this, Badger, but the comments. I mean, you've sat on a number of these committees, and I know these things can be kind of head nodders at times, like, uh, but this one was pretty juiced yesterday. And I think what surprised an awful lot of people was the opening statement before he even got into his testimony about what was going on with the Lavaline situation.
4: Well, yes, uh, uh, Michael Wernick, the, basically, uh, not basically, he is Ottawa's, Ottawa's top civil servant, uh, said some extraordinary things. And in, in, in more or less in his, uh, his lead-up to uh, questions from the committee, said that he was afraid because of... The decline in what he called decline in civility, that somebody, referring to some politician, and I was think he was maybe referring to the prime minister, but didn't didn't name him, because of the decline in, in in civility and just some of the outrageous things that people are saying in in on Twitter, for example, that some politician could get shot this this uh, election. And I I know if I'd been there, my jaw would have hit the desk.
0: Was he out of line?
4: Well, you know, is it hyperbole? Maybe a bit. But the point is that you just have to go on Twitter. A friend of mine refers to Twitter as like watching an open sewer. And... And it really some of these things that their peoples say and call for, like his literally his you know in terms of their prime minister his head and 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 just it's it's very frightening stuff in fact and i I think in part what he was saying is is right, but is somebody going to get shot i mean who, i mean that's is that inviting trouble? You know, given all the problems, you know, some of the uh, terrorism and stuff like that, you know, Toronto's experience and certainly Montreal and elsewhere, Is it? was it just a bit over the top? And I would say, was it worth, war- you know, did it warrant mention, mentioning, and, and I think maybe it was, but calling, is suggesting or predicting that kind of stuff, I think, is a, just a tad too far.
0: But I'm, I'm going to put devil's advocate here for a second. I, I, I agree that there might have been a little hyperbole to this. And and I saw a lot of the criticism on social media about uh, his comments about uh, what, what they said. Like, hey, that's not what you were there for, et cetera. Well, you know, people that make opening statements use it as a platform. And, and obviously this guy had something on his mind. Uh, but there are examples of this. And, and you know, just a couple of days before that, of course, I think you and I were talking about this the other day, about the uh, the, the truck protest that was going on in Ottawa. And you had one of the senators, Kachuk, gets up there and tells the truckers that, to, to roll over any liberals that they see. I mean, uh, it, uh, that's not the kind of public discourse or political discourse you expect. You know, I, I can understand anybody who wants to be partisan saying, look, at, don't vote for them. Hey, let's get those bums out of office. That's, that's fair game. But when you say kill them... Uh, I think you've gone over the line, and I think that's what actually when you look at uh, at some of Warnick's comments, I think that's what he was referring to specifically. That
4: oh, I mean, it's, you just let, you just have to read uh, some of the things that folks are saying on Twitter, and it's just it's downright right frightening. I mean, it goes way beyond the pale, and sure, I, I think that you know he he's obviously had this on in his mind, and for a top bureaucrat to come out and say something, you've got to remember these these are these civil servants very seldom, particularly you know the clerk of the Privy Council, as Wernick is, say things like that and and I guess that's why it's had such impact, both positive and negative, is that you just don't expect that from a, a civil servant.
0: No, but at the same time uh, I think what this guy's done is done an analysis of what's going on right now, and and I think maybe maybe the time and place was was not the proper thing to do, but what he said I still think has to be taken uh, at, at, at face value. And uh, there were two cases right now going before the U.S. courts. Uh, we remember the guy that sent the pipe bombs to a number of people on CNN and NBC a couple of years ago that were enemies. You know, Donald Trump says you know the the, the, the free press now are the enemy of the people. Uh, that guy took that to heart. There was another guy that just arrested a couple of days ago that had this cache of, of weapons, about 35 or 40 weapons. He was a government employee, and he had a hit list, too, of people from the media. Uh, and, and I think what Wernick was trying to get to yesterday was that, look at maybe maybe this is just anger, and maybe this is just the way that people articulate their, their anger towards governments. And But to suggest that somebody who's doing something you don't like in government is all of a sudden a traitor— uh, you know, there are unhinged people out there that are going to take that at face value and say, well, I'm going to do something about it then. If the press are the enemies of the people, then I get rid of them, or I have to get rid of this guy. I, I, the idea of the analogy of getting shot might have been a little bit too descriptive and a little hyperbole. Like, I get that. But at the same time, we do have a problem here, and I don't think too many people even want to admit that.
4: Well, it's just not the United States. I mean, no. Let's, let's face it, sheer... You know, not that many months ago, was you know was basically in his own words, uh, not calling the, the media the enemy of the state, but you know more or less implying, uh, or certainly I inferred that he was saying that he you know he wanted nothing to do with the mediator, basically, and that and if he gets in, look out, he'll take care of them, and so that that just it, it, it engenders, you know, this this kind of. Hatred that, that is out there, and it, and it is hatred. There's no question about it. When you read, again, just not on, on Twitter, but, but elsewhere, some of the comments about just politicians in general, you, you go, you know, are, are you kidding? Are you really saying this stuff? Because it, it borders on being criminal. That's what it is.
0: Well, and threatening, and 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 I think your point is well taken. Uh, we've seen it happen in the states. Uh, we've seen it happen in France. We know there was an attempt on, on Macron a couple of years ago, like a month ago, rather. Uh, and and for us to think, well, that's never going to happen in Canada is a pretty naive approach.
4: Well, reporters are all, for example, reporters are already saying that they're they're being treated, you know, so differently now in terms of when they go to a a public event or uh are just, you know, doing a streeter about how badly people will, you know, treat them and and more or less short of spitting on them swearing at them calling them, you know, things like enemy of the state and, or enemy of the country and all that crap. I mean, this never happened before. I I mean, I've I've had people mad at me over the or angry at me over the years for you know whatever coverage and that, and but I've never had anybody just treat me, you know, so badly,
0: or or basically call you know somebody to 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 task and simply say get rid of them. And I mean, we saw this happen. I mean, uh, well, we talked about the hit list. I mean, this guy that was in the Coast Guard that just got arrested because uh, he had a hit list of a number of people in the media. Uh, he tweeted just before they arrested him. He says, "If Trump gets impeached, it's civil war, and we're going after these people." Uh, that's a threat. Uh, that that's not just idle talk. I mean, that you know, if, if you said that to somebody else, uh, you know, charges are going to be laid. So, you know, th- I think to go back to your original point here, Warnick, I, I think was just postulating about a very, very real concern that we should be having here right now that nobody seems to want to discuss. Uh, maybe that wasn't the forum for it, but he certainly got people talking about it today.
4: And and. Maybe that's what he wanted.
0: Exactly. Uh,
4: That was his intent.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Badger, we got to scoot. We're tight on time on this, but uh, let's uh, keep this conversation going. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks, Bill. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park and uh, Parliament Hill for many, many years. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.